Hello, and welcome to part two of episode 29 of Design EDU Today, the podcast series discussing topics concerning the state of interactive design education at institutions of higher learning. I am your host, Gary Rosance, Assistant Professor of Graphic Design at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Today, we will continue the conversation by discussing responsive web design and the web as a medium in contrast to print design. In part one of this episode, last um, two weeks ago, we discussed design workflow. Today's guest is Megan Petrie, a digital art director at the Baltimore firm Planet, where she's designing websites, apps, and identity for a wide variety of clients from nonprofits to hospitality to beauty brands. Megan works with a multidisciplinary team of super talented folks to bring her creative solutions to life, delivering on the needs of the client and engaging with the end user. Megan started with a love of film photography and began playing in Photoshop during high school. Soon realizing that she loved design and solving problems, it led her to getting a BFA in graphic design from UMBC. After working as a print designer at an agency for her first four years in the industry, Megan spent her evenings learning HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and made the switch to digital design and front-end development, and Megan hasn't looked back. When she's not designing, Megan's snuggling her two Shebas, reading all the sci-fi she can get her hands on, and taking woodworking classes so she can build furniture that looks less haphazard. Welcome, Megan. Thanks, Gary. So as I mentioned, I'm also revamping my responsive web design class. I used to teach it as a front-end development class where, where students learned HTML, CSS, and how to implement vanilla JavaScript plugins. Uh, the problem with this approach was it didn't leave any time to discuss visual design with the students because it took all semester for students to get even just a basic understanding of front-end development. So then I tried teaching the course focusing on visual design and using tools like Envision or the release of Adobe XD. However, this has had the inverse problem where they really couldn't critique or test their designs in a browser. It's sort of like having a student create a 16 by 20 inch poster or a three and a half inch by two inch business card, but never print it out to see what it actually looks like in context. So my first question is, how do the visual designers at Planet go about creating designs and then testing them in a browser to ensure the typography is the appropriate um, across all devices, the content and the, the grids flow properly across all sizes. So how, how do they go about that? How do you? <laughs> well, first we do initial designs at mobile and a predetermined desktop or laptop size and scale things up or down from there. Uh, you know, I'm used to staring at my giant Apple display all day, but most people are using touch devices now or smaller laptops. So as it's much more fun to design on a larger scale, but we try to uh, focus on optimizing the experience there and then scaling things up for larger screen sizes. But as far as, um, you know, initially when we're putting designs into Envision, you can pull, you know, for a mobile design, you can pull it up on your phone and mm -hmm. Envision 
you can scroll through, you can see if the font sizes are readable, because in general, even experienced designers will make things very small and hard to read on mm -hmm. mobile. Uh, so it's helpful to look at things and envision and just kind of get an idea of how that looks visually. But then once um, things are in dev, especially once the front end's finished, that's when we usually do the optimization for the different screen sizes, mm -hmm. and then we'll provide recommendations to the developer. So um, to save ourselves, too, from needing to design each breakpoint, we'll usually just sketch a rough of how things will stack and break. So you know, we use the same grid, not the same grid for every project, but we'll use the same uh, grid across the board for that project, and then we can just kind of you know, do a rough and tell the dev how it's going to break down. Um, do you want to briefly explain the grid? Because that's the one thing that students, I, they fight it? I don't, I don't quite get there's a, they don't like it. <laughs> no, uh, I think I, some people, some designers don't like it either. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you can break it. It's, it's, a, oh, absolutely, it's yeah. a really good starting point to like yep. keep things consistent. consistent. <laughs> totally, yeah, and I think too like you're not married to a 12 column yeah. grid like you can have a 14 column grid or you could have a 20 column grid like whatever it is that you need to achieve that website so um i think a lot of it as far as um even other people i've met who don't like using a grid is that it really locks you into a structure. And especially if you were taught like print design first, mm -hmm. you're used to having a blank canvas. And so there's nothing really hemming you in in any sort of way. For me, I find some boundaries to be hugely beneficial when designing because it helps me narrow my focus more quickly and I can really provide the best solution for that problem if I have some sort of boundaries. If things are really open-ended, it's really hard. But, you know, do you want me to go into specifics about what the grid is exactly? Or no, no, we, we get the general okay. idea of it. It's just the, um, the, st the students really, they don't use it. I mean, like, it's, let's see your grid structure, and, and they don't have it. Yeah, um, okay. And even though we told them to do it. And, and really when I go about trying to explain it to them, it's like, it's, it's not the grid. It's about relationships. Yeah. The grid's just a tool for you to make things relate to each other. Right. Um, you could easily do that without a grid because it's just all lining things up. I mean, you don't need totally, to do it, yeah. but it's just, I don't know, it just makes it easier in the beginning. And then, you know, as you get experience, you can do that without having like a handy tool. And I'm just curious, you know, you answer the question. Mm -hmm. I think I think too. Like just, it's a loose structure, yeah. And it's you can make it however you want to make it. But especially again, it's that thing of working in a vacuum. You're not, unless you are, you know, a designer and developer. You're probably not going to be working in a vacuum. And so the grid structure is something that developers just. I mean, they know all that. That's yeah. how they build a website. And so, it not only saves them time, because if you have a grid structure, they can very easily break it down. Intuitively, they're gonna mm -hmm. know how stuff stacks based on that. And uh, it's also good for you as a designer to just be spatially aware of what's going on with your site, because sometimes 
you'll design things and you won't be, you're looking at like a long comp and you won't be thinking of how things are breaking out in the visible screen. And so I think having the grid there just helps you organize it that much better. And I think that's a great way to explain to the students, if I'm going to paraphrase just to make sure I'm on track, is that you have to hand this off to somebody else. Mm -hmm. So if you want to ensure the accuracy (laughs) of what you send off looks like what you envisioned using the thinking or the system of a grid, which is easily understandable understandable by the developer is going to help you get consistency. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think, too, like, it saves you from having to micromanage someone because, of course, no nobody wants to be micromanaged. Yeah. But if you're not following a consistent grid, you're going to have to, like, sit with a developer or provide very, very detailed annotations about every breakpoint, every screen size, <laughs> like, everything because it's there's no sort of structure there. But, you know, obviously everybody's not having the exact same experience when they're visiting a website from a different device, but the grid just helps it fill in, I guess fill in the blanks is a good way of putting it. Um, all right, so back onto my, back on track, oh, I was thinking about, you know, how I handle responsive web design. Um, I still think visual designers need to learn HTML and CSS because they need to understand the medium they are working on, which is a heck of a lot more complicated than understanding ink, paper, and the different printing processes. So from your experience, stopping short of producing the mythical unicorn, just how much HTML and CSS would you like um, your visual designers uh, to know? And you know, give specifics. Yeah, I do. I don't think that every digital designer needs to have the full capabilities of a front-end developer, Mm -hmm. but definitely that working knowledge of HTML and CSS is important. So specifically, uh, and a a lot of it has to do with typography, uh, digital typography, where different line heights and font sizes, as well as column widths, are more readable on different devices and screens. So you can't just scale up and down indiscriminately. Uh, And it's not something a developer will always pick up on because they're not as focused on the visuals. So it helps if you can tell them the sizing, letter spacing, font weights, et cetera, that you would recommend. And, you know, to kind of add on to that, as far as the typography goes, thinking of the structure of all of the HTML elements you're going to need and keeping them consistent across the board. <laughs> so a lot of newer digital designers will have a wide variety of headline and body copy sizes, and there will be inconsistencies with even things like link links and unordered lists. And so when you're framing your design and your thinking of typography in those ways, like kind of anticipating the developer's needs, Mm -hmm. uh, it just makes things go so much more smoothly. And the other thing I was going to mention is the grid structure, like we talked about before. They're really complicated, uh, but it is a nightmare for developers if you don't understand what you're doing and you're using a variety of grids in a single project. So, you know, Again, it'll be more intuitive for them if you're using a consistent grid and you can hand it off and it's all done. Yeah. Well, I think the key term there is consistency. As long as you're consistent. Oh, yeah. The grid is a tool to improve consistency. Absolutely. Style guides are a 
a tool to improve consistency. Right. Oh, and the other thing I did want to mention too is um, having that just a working knowledge of HTML and CSS. You'll you'll know in, immediately what's possible to build and what's mm-hmm. impossible. And I think every new digital designer ends up uh, designing their first website, and it looks like a print piece. Like type is really small. Mm-hmm. You see long stretches of screen space where there's not a lot of information because they're looking at the whole canvas size mm-hmm. rather than um, the visible screen. And there is a lot of practicing that goes into designing a great user experience, but it'll save a lot of time if you already know what's possible and impossible from a development perspective. Yeah, I know. And I, I think my favorite example of the print um, comparison to that is um, there's a, a they're, they do silkscreen. They're called the Little Friends of Printmaking, and they make these awesome awesome illustrations and, and posters and one of them it was black paper with black ink oh yeah that i mean intuitively why would you design that because that's obviously not going to work unless right. you know the medium of silk screening you know you can have that the black ink will actually show up because it's not going to match the tonal value of the black paper yeah and it's going to have this really amazing effect yeah that that looks awesome and, and you don't think to do it because you don't unless you understand the medium and i think that's right. where we need to get to with html and css you understand that medium you can then bend it oh absolutely <laughs> to things that people haven't thought of before all right so another area where i'm having trouble is with micro interactions and you kind of mentioned them earlier and by that I mean animating drop-down menus and buttons, page transitions, modals, alerts, all that stuff. So to improve the user experience. So if I want my students to focus on micro interactions, I'm either teaching them After Effects so they can mock them up in that, right? or I'm teaching CSS animations, which is probably more complicated and leaves very little time for the actual visual design. Right. So I feel like that stuff is just like an afterthought right now. Um, so how does Planet handle the visual design of micro interactions so the client and the developers can visualize the end result and go about actually making them? I know that's really hard because, you know, After Effects is such a complex program that just teaching basic proficiency in that I imagine is (laughs) is really difficult you could probably spend a whole class on it Um, we we do use After Effects to animate visual comps Uh, sometimes too we will just find a precedent elsewhere uh, on another site to get the feel across and we also will have developers mock something lo-fi up just you know, this is how the menu's gonna load, or this is how this transition will work, just to give a client an idea of how that goes. Um, I do think that, you know, as far as students go, and, you know, maybe it is less about the uh, digital digital design mm-hmm. here, and it is more about, you know, showing showing what you're doing, but kind of like how Dribble is in like those little snapshots, mm-hmm. um, Maybe it is just part of the class is just uh, developing a few little snapshots in CSS. doesn't have to be visually designed so well, but just to give an idea of timing and uh, also that knowledge of the CSS animations or the After Effects animations, whichever way you go with it. But 
timing is an important thing. Mm-hmm. And that's a big part of being a digital designer too, is transitions and when stuff's coming in and how it's staggered. So that would be another thing that would be great to incorporate if possible. Yeah. And, and one thing that it, it's kind of, it's worrisome for me is, and you're not the first person to say this, but you know, we'll grab something that's already done as an example and then build and then rebuild that. And the other one that I've, I've heard um, people say when I ask them the same question is like, oh, we already have house styles for that. Right. Which is, I mean, it works, but it doesn't lead to, that's kind of like a closed loop. It doesn't lead to like exploring and coming up with new ideas. And right. so I think that's where, it's an exciting time. Like we can actually really like push the envelope on what we can do if it's absolutely a concerted effort to make that change. Well, and definitely as a student, you know, if you're, if you're setting, um, if you're beginning in that like closed loop of just like, I'm going to grab a precedent and I'm going to use that and you're not actually creating or learning the different options or, Mm -hmm. you know, that will be limiting for you in the future. Whereas I feel like you know, as a more experienced designer or art director, maybe you're short on time. And so you are, for a certain project, finding a precedent from another yeah. site works way better than coming up with something custom for this client. But uh, you definitely don't want to inhibit anyone's creativity, especially yeah. starting out in school. Yeah, well, no, and it's also, I mean, I understand budget. Like, they come with the budgets. Like, okay, you can have this custom experience or you can have this pre-can experienced totally makes sense and it's worthwhile but if we just keep defaulting to the pre-canned experiences we're not learning to push the envelope i hate to use that term another one thing that i find really useful is there's a blog called code drops and Mm -hmm. they'll have uh, you might you're familiar with it but that's really helpful for just those little things that you know maybe you've done a select field you know a thousand times and you know you're running out of ideas on it and they'll just kind of refresh your creativity. So, yeah. you know, there it's less borrowing that as a precedent and it's more like, oh yeah, I don't have to think of select fields in the same way I've thought about them the past 20 times. Like they don't have to be an afterthought. I can do something exciting with these, even though it's just a part of a form. And I absolutely hate coding and designing and yeah. <laughs> forms. Right. <laughs> just, no, they're terrible. <laughs> I don't know what it is about those that are just awful. Um, All right. So my last question in regards to critiquing and testing visual designs has to do with performance. So do the visual designers or digital designers take performance into consideration or does that happen after the project is handed off if you're not, you know, working in like that agile design process where developers and designers are sitting side by side? Right. Um, and performance is absolutely important. Uh, and it, it's something that the designers and the art directors are considering from the beginning. So in, in that in initial client brief that I was telling you about, we'll mm-hmm. get the target audience and device information, and we can design accordingly for that. So, I mean, usually device, it is across the board. So stuff has to work on every device. Um, if it's directed at younger audiences, generally that'll be like some sort of tablet or mobile more mm-hmm. often than it'll be a desktop, but that can kind of help inform how we're designing moving forward. But you know, checking the speed of things is really important. So uh, load times, minimizing the number of typefaces and weights, um, 
having conversations about how we're handling video, if we're streaming it mm -hmm. from YouTube or Vimeo, or if we're hosting it. And optimizing photography is important too, because uh, often we find that you know people aren't used to saving stuff for the web, so they're not optimizing JPEGs, mm -hmm. or they're uploading huge files to websites, and of course that will slow your site down so much. So knowing where you can cut corners to optimize things while still keeping the visual integrity of your site is really important. I would love for like beginning photography classes to start, you know, doing photography for the web. Right. If, and for example, I'll just use like, you know, you've got portraits where you've got these like really, you know, you're, you're the, you know, a, a person standing and they've got this like beautiful backdrop of like Central Park. And yeah. that thing is that's a massively huge file. But if you just simply did, you know, change your depth of field, depth of focus where the background's now blurry but yeah. still enough visual information that you know it's central park but the you know the person is in full focus right almost like cuts the file size in half yeah and nobody's again not that i'm aware of it, is nobody's like really teaching it from that perspective of performance right like exactly the, how to make your file and make your take your photographs better so they're more performant from the beginning and then the optimization yeah that's we should be just doing that to, yeah, you know the file size. We should be just doing that from the beginning. Well, and even things like, um, you know, on something I designed recently, we had a image where like a woman was on an isolated background, and mm -hmm. there was texture to the background, uh, but it was a pretty large image, and so we just you know, clipped out the woman and we put her in there as a PNG and then we used a gradient color background mm -hmm. in CSS for the background of that. So it ended up making things a lot more lightweight. So thinking thinking of things in those terms too, where like, how could I make this load faster? How do I translate this into something that works better digitally? Like that's all really important. That's really smart though. I mean, that, and, and understanding the medium. If you yeah. know that you can have a background image, you can have a gradient background that replicates texture. Mm -hmm. If you don't know that you can do that in, in CSS, you don't know that you could do that. Right. You just plug in an image yeah. and large file size. I, that's yeah. I never would have thought of that. That's pretty cool. Um, all right. So, based on your experiences, what are intern and entry um, interns and entry level interactive designers missing that design educators should be addressing in the classroom? I do. I do think it's hard to be trying to learn the basics of design and composition, and also this more trade specific practical knowledge. Um, the workflow information is so important so I'm really glad you're addressing that and the understanding of the structure in you know HTML and CSS and like I mentioned before I would say even simple things like optimizing files for the web and specific user experience knowledge would be very useful so um, not just user behaviors either but also things like wireframing and information mm -hmm. architecture uh, it's you know not the most glamorous stuff, but it's definitely practical knowledge that we use daily, and it would give young designers a leg up. So I know that some um, some young designers that I know in their first job were thrown into a position where they had to wear a few more hats, and you know their boss would be like, "All right, well wireframe this, bye," you know, and they'd just be kind of stuck like, "What is a wireframe?" So 
I think focusing on those structural elements too, it could just be glossing over, but it would be really helpful. We're, we're getting close on time, so I don't want to take up too much more, but I do have a follow-up question about wireframes. Sure. Because I've talked about it in previous episodes, and I've come to the conclusion with wireframes, we're as educators or in the classroom, we're using them kind of wrong. When we tell the students to wireframe, it's not information architecture. It's a rough sketch for a visual design. Right. Is there a difference between the two? I mean, did, did that make sense, what I just no, said? No, it totally does. Um, I don't think wireframes should be designed at all. They're very much just like these are the structural elements we need based on user statistics or the data we have. This is how people are behaving. So we need a call to action here, you know, performance stuff. Mm -hmm. And basically it would just be yes to plan out the structure of your page, but more so to make sure that you have all the elements there. I don't think that wireframes are always best client-facing. I think yeah. they are a stronger internal tool because clients have trouble visualizing stuff. Yes. They'd almost rather see the final design than a wireframe. So uh, we, we certainly do show clients wireframes here, but for me personally, I feel that using them as an internal tool to make sure all your boxes are checked is a way better way to go. Yeah, because the... And I think that's what happens when we tell them to do a wireframe. They think of sketching out their ideas visually. And so the clients see it the same way. They look at that as that is a design piece, not yeah. an information piece. Right. Yeah, <laughs> so, absolutely. And so that's a, a trouble. All right. So specifically, what types of projects or experiences would you like to see design educators incorporate? Um, these could address problems you just identified or be something that you have been thinking about. Um, so again, as, like I said before, as much as I hated the group projects in college, <laughs> I think that's such an awesome idea because again, even if you're working in a small company in this field, you're probably not going to be working in a in a vacuum. So, uh, letting go of your own ego and relying on team members for their expertise is important. Um, I think also basic program proficiencies, and maybe that's an after hours extra credit thing. I mean, I learned a lot about the Adobe suite and how to develop HTML and CSS from, you know, after hours at my first job, I was doing a lot of Lynda tutorials mm -hmm. and investing my own time into Code Academy and taking things apart and putting them back together. Uh, but it definitely made me a much stronger uh, digital designer. And I think finally, I think the user experience sort of thing, and maybe that's just a part of a class, but I think that is really helpful because one of the, in my opinion, one of the greatest things about digital design and why I prefer it over print is that, you know, we're solving problems and really at the end of the day, the end user is what matters to us. So mm -hmm. the client could want anything. I personally could want anything, but that doesn't really matter. It's about getting the right results and delivering that final user with the right product. Can you just define a little bit more what you mean by user experience just so you can put in the context that you, there's a lot to user experience. Oh yeah, no, there yeah. is. And I mean, I think that that's everything from, you know, we do, we do research on demographics mm -hmm. and get data from Google, Google analytics about who's going to the site. Um, 
And I think it's as subtle as knowing what appeals to like millennial soccer moms versus what, you know, what appeals to a different target audience. Um, That's something that you don't really think about usually. And then it can be kind of uncomfortable to think about once you're in a job and you're like, I have to really narrow down to these like broad specifics of what this group likes. But there is a certain way you would approach those people. Maybe there's a certain tone, too, that you would take that you wouldn't take in another way or for another group. And then user experience, too, in the sense that, um, like, is your design going to get the results that the client is looking for? Like, is it going to solve the problem? So are those people who are coming to the site, like, are they going to be able to find the information really quickly? Because you don't have a lot of time to capture their attention. Mm-hmm. So is, is it easy to navigate? Like, is it loading quickly? Those sorts of things. Is the structure easy to understand? Like, the flow, is it easy to read and scroll through? Um, all of those little things, I think, are, you know, and... Again, maybe just to gloss over, I don't think you need to spend a whole semester on it, but just incorporating that into a curriculum would give people a leg up. Well, I think that's the difference between I give them to the design brief and I versus I go in as the client and say, this is what I want. Right. When I'm the client saying what I want to achieve and who the audience is, then they have to figure out all yeah. of that stuff that you said. But when you just hand them the brief, it just becomes a, an exercise of, Let's, you know, visual decoration. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah, I All agree. Right. So, okay, Megan, um, before I let you go, is there anything that you are working on personally that you would like to share or is there something that you want to promote or anything I f- forgot to ask? Um, so a lot of the really cool stuff that I'm working on right now, I can't talk about yet because it hasn't gone live. Uh, but I will say, especially in reference to this, like, you know, um, this teamwork thing that we've been Mm -hmm. talking about in the group projects. Uh, One thing that I've been working on that I've been really loving um, has been a fantastic example of a group of totally different team members, but coming together in a really short, tight timeline. Mm -hmm. And it even extends to the client side team because they are wonderful collaborators with us and they are working with us to provide the best solution. So Um, It's really been a dream team of collaboration, and it's been really great to work on. And I can send you a link probably in a month or so. (laughs) Please do, because I always go back and I I will update the the show notes. (laughs) That's all we have time for today on part two of episode 29 of Design EDU Today. I want to thank today's guest, Megan, for being so generous with her time. I want to thank the audience for listening, and I want to thank the Design EDU Today hosting sponsor, DigitalOcean, and CDN sponsor, Fastly, for making the hosting and distribution of these podcasts possible. Finally, I want to thank the AIGA and the AIGA Design Educators community for their generous support of my research that led to this podcast series. If you want to discover more about the Design EDU Today podcast and read the session notes and transcripts, visit us on the web at designedu.today. You can follow us on Twitter at designedu today, like our Facebook page, or subscribe to this podcast through the iTunes or Google Play Store. Thank you for listening to Design EDU Today. <laughs>